Good morning. I as well greet each of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's a blessing to have a good number here this morning. So in the past several years, I've preached through the Sermon on the Mount, as well as the book of Ephesians. And I've got some feedback, at least from beyond the congregation. Uh, I hope that those studies were a blessing. I know that they were to me. And I think one of the reasons that it was a blessing is because it was a challenge. It, it, uh, it calls me to dig deeper into those passages and to realize how many truths God's Word contains in passages that often we read and maybe don't give a whole lot of thought to. And I've been pondering recently, doing another study of a book or a passage. And so I've decided to, with God's help, attempt to begin that this morning as he continues to lead. We'll, we'll see how things go. But I've decided to uh, look at the book of First Peter and things go well. I imagine Second Peter as well. So I invite you to turn to First Peter. And as I've learned before, when, when you take a passage and you start looking and thinking and studying about the verses, it's amazing what you can find. And I'm not going to cover as much territory as I thought I originally was going to this morning. This book begins in a very similar way to other New Testament epistles. It begins with a greeting where the writer identifies himself. He then identifies who he's writing to. And then he gives a greeting to those recipients. I'd like to read that uh, introduction to the book in verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So we see, first of all, that the writer is Peter. If you read commentaries, you'll find out that there are some people that argue a little bit th that, but the authorship of, of Peter is fairly well established, and I didn't put this in my notes, but I found where there was, I think, at least three or four of the very early church fathers who quoted uh, or referred to this letter and attributed it to the Apostle Peter. So one of the 12 disciples of our Lord, and more than that, one of the three who were the closest to the Lord Jesus during his ministry here on earth. 
And I find it interesting because I think that Peter, James, and John were especially close to Christ for a reason. I think that uh, we see those three emerging as, as real leaders in the early church, and I believe it was because Jesus was preparing them. He knew their character, he knew their abilities, and, and Jesus was working with them and preparing them for the time when he needed men here on this earth to take the leadership of his church. And I can't say this for sure, but I'm pretty confident in saying that we know more about Peter than any of the other disciples. The Apostle John would be the only other one that we would maybe know a good bit about. But Peter has always been at the forefront in the gospel accounts. During Jesus' ministry, we see Peter often at the forefront, many times acting impulsively and often saying something that was inappropriate. Uh, you know, there's, there's times I read accounts of Peter and I feel bad for Peter because of what he said when he said it. And I've been impressed with how many people, including myself, tend to identify with Peter. And I believe that it's because of that record that we have of him, of him making so many faux pas that we identify with him today because it enables us to see his humanity and in him we see our own humanity and we feel that if there's hope for Peter if Peter who made all of these blunders if Peter who seemed to not have it all together could then become this powerful leader in the early church maybe there's hope for me Now, I don't want us to hold Peter up too highly. He was just a human like you and I. But I want us to consider as we look at his writings, I want you to consider and hold up the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in Peter's life. As we look at the record of Peter before the day of Pentecost and compare it with the Peter we know from the day, from the day of Pentecost on, and what we see in his writings that we'll be looking at, we see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work mightily in Peter's life. He went from a misguided and many times bumbling man who spoke out of place at a crucial moment he denied that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the man, he was the, the apostle who Jesus turned to and said, get thee behind me, Satan. That was before the day of Pentecost. After the day of Pentecost, we see him a man who was on fire for the Lord, one of the foremost leaders in the church.
Sometime I challenge you to read Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and consider that this was the man who just approximately a month and a half before had denied that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the change in his life. Peter is a prime example of what the Lord can do with a person who is committed and surrendered and sold out to him. And as we look at, at Peter's writings, remember that Peter was an uneducated fisherman. And it should be a strong reminder to every one of us that we don't need to be someone special. We don't need to have some highfalutin education to be a powerful worker in God's kingdom. But we do need to be sold out to the Lord so that he can use us. So we look at Peter, we can notice what the Jewish leaders noticed in Acts 4.13 where it said that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And my challenge in that is that you know, Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin and defended them, themselves on the healing of the, of the lame man when they were called to account by the Jewish leaders. And, and they, were, they were amazed that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They said, these men shouldn't be able to speak like this. These men shouldn't have it all together like this. But it was because they had been with Jesus and these, these Jewish leaders recognized it. And I want to challenge each of us this morning to people see in you that you have been with Jesus. Have you spent enough time with the Lord in prayer and in, in time with his word that has changed you? that has educated you in the ways of the Lord. Because that's what happened to Peter and John. They had been educated in the ways of God. And not by men, but they had been educated by the Lord himself. And as we come to the Lord and we study his word, we can become educated in the ways of the Lord as well. And people can see that we have been with Jesus. And we, like Peter, can do the work of the church. You know, we like to identify with Peter when we read of his blunders and we see his humanity. And we, we identify with that because we've done the same things. So we want to identify with him before the crucifixion and the resurrection. But do you and I want to identify with Peter, who was a powerful witness for the risen Lord? Do we want to identify with the Peter who, had, who was a changed man? With the Peter who preached fearlessly? With the Peter who was willing to suffer and die, crucified upside down, according to legend? Uh, I say legend... I don't think there's proof of it. It's widely uh, accepted that that is how he was crucified. 
because he wanted to humble himself. He didn't view himself worthy to die in the upright position as his Lord had. I want us to be challenged as we think about Peter and his writings to the change that Christ brought that enabled this man to deliver us this letter of instruction in God's word. The next thing that he identifies here in these verses, verses 1 and 2, he identifies who he is writing to. I wanted to first mention the, he uses the word strangers here in verse 1. Most likely it's referring to those who because of persecution had fled to different parts of the then known world. Could have also been referring to those who had believed the gospel message in other parts of the world, not the Jews, but the Gentiles, who the gospel message had been carried to. And he specifically mentions five different regions. All of these regions are in the area of the world that we know today as Turkey. And some commentators think that it is possible that Peter had traveled and preached in that area and had possibly won converts and started churches in those areas and was writing to encourage them, much like Paul did in his letters. We don't know that. That's, that's some supposition. It's based on uh, comparison between Paul's writings and Peter's. But then in verse 2, Peter identifies the recipients of this letter as the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And these terms elect and foreknowledge have caused a good bit of debate and contention within the church over the centuries. And they're terms that as, as a preacher it's easy to try to shy away from them because they can create some controversy and but, I, but as I looked at these and read about this passage, I feel like we need to look at these terms and, 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 and get a good understanding of what Peter is saying here. You know, some teach that God in his foreknowledge elects or he chooses some people to be saved and he chooses that other people would be condemned to eternal punishment in hell and it's out of our control i don't know when i'm born when, when a child's born we don't know whether that child is condemned to hell or whether that child is has been chosen to live in glory And I think that we need to understand what the true biblical meaning is of these terms, of these concepts. So first, I've already mentioned that elect means 
to choose, or it means chosen. So we can easily see how that we can jump to the conclusion that if someone is the elect, that means that they have been individually chosen by God to be his child. But I think it helps to understand this if we ask a simple question, and that is, what are the elect chosen for? And we see three things about that, that help us to answer that question here in verse 2. First, we see that it is through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a side note, but notice that the Trinity is mentioned in that verse. It mentions the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So, if you ever need a verse to go to to support the Trinity, here it is. So, I want to look at these terms and consider what they mean and how this applies to these terms of election and foreknowledge. So sanctification is purification or making something holy. Something that is holy is without sin, without defilement. So I believe that we see that God has chosen that his people would be holy and pure. He wants his people to be sanctified through the work of the Holy Spirit. It says there's sanctification of the Spirit. So the Spirit is at work in the heart of the believer, continually prompting and convicting and striving to direct us in a straight path, striving to direct us in paths of holiness and sanctification. And it says that that is unto obedience. Obedience is what God desires as well for his people along with, with the sanctification or holiness. In fact, I don't think that you can separate the two. I don't think it's possible to be sanctified or to be holy before God and be disobedient. We also have here mentioned the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the blood was used for purification. It was sprinkled to purify from sin. So in the New Testament, we're purified or forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We could say that's salvation. That's where it begins. And then the Holy Spirit works to make us sanctified to bring us to holiness. So I believe that we can see here that God in his foreknowledge has provided for a way for mankind to be saved 
so that they can be sanctified and made holy so that they can be in a right relationship with a holy God. God's purpose is to bring people out of sin and into a life of holiness. And we can see that through a number of scriptures. That God's desire is for all men to live that life of sanctification. I'd just like to look at at four different scriptures this morning and invite you to turn to them. First of all, John 3, 17. John 3, 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is speaking of the whole world and something I hadn't thought about until I just read it right now. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That is the, the that is that phrase right there is refuting the, the teaching of some being condemned to eternal damnation of uh, apart from their own free will. God sent his, not his son to condemn, but he sent him to save the world, not just a chosen group. 1 Timothy 2.4 I have the wrong reference here. No, I'm in 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2.4. Speaking of God, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? God's desire here specifically stated is that all men would be saved. Then Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. God's grace, God's enabling power to live that holy and sanctified life has appeared to all men. It's not for a specific group of people. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not willing that any should perish, but that all, all men, all of mankind should come to repentance. God doesn't desire that any would be condemned to hell. But rather, his desire is for repentance for everyone, for all 
humanity to live a life of holiness, a life of sanctification through the Spirit. And he has made that possible for all who will surrender and who will accept his offer of salvation. So we see that God has provided a way of salvation for all people of the world who are willing to surrender to him and accept his offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. He has chosen that all who would accept that call will be sanctified and made holy and purified, be purified by the blood of Christ. So it isn't that some are elected or some are chosen to be saved and some are condemned to be lost, but rather that God's election and choice is that all who would repent would experience and live a life of holiness and sanctification. And not all, since we're creatures of free choice, not all will choose that free offer of salvation. Not all will choose to live that life of holiness and sanctification. And God has chosen or elected that those who refuse that offer of salvation, those are the ones who will face judgment and eternal punishment. And I feel that our human tendency is often to focus on salvation from eternal damnation. But it is so clear in these verses and other scriptures that God's desire for mankind isn't just for salvation, but it's for mankind's sanctification. God wants us to be holy people, and that is the theme of scripture from the beginning since the fall of mankind. And I don't think that we can really separate the two. I think that if we try to, in a way, or sometimes we, in a way, we try maybe to separate the, the two, the salvation and sanctification. But if we want to accept God's offer of salvation, we must accept his desire for his people to be holy, sanctified, people striving for and living a life of holiness and separation from the world will not bring us salvation but true salvation will bring us to live a life of holiness and obedience it's what God has elected it's what God has chosen for his people that they would be a holy and separate people in this evil and sinful world. And I felt compelled to turn to and look a little bit at 2 Corinthians 6. Second Corinthians 6 verses 14 and 18. These are very familiar verses, but they're verses we need. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? 
And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, because of this, come out from among them the world, the ways of the world and, and, and sin and Satan. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We need to have a strong emphasis on that fact. And I know at times the conservative church has been accused of focusing on separation and not as much on some other things. But I tell you this morning that if we let that, that clear biblical teaching go, that God expects, God has elected that his people would be a separate, called out, holy people in this sinful world. If we lose that teaching, we will lose much more than that teaching. And it troubles me when I see people in the church that seem to have a strong attraction to the world. And it troubles me when I see how quickly the fads and the fashions of the world affect the people of the church. It seems that we want to identify with the world's appearance rather than to identify with a holy and separate and called out people of God. And it troubles me when I see people push back against biblical standards that have been put in place by godly men. And it troubles me because it appears that we want to be part of the elect. One of those that experienced God's offer of salvation. But do we want to be a part of God's elect, God's sanctified, holy people? separate from the ways of a sinful world, a sinful society. If we try to have one, that is salvation, if we try to have one, the one without the other, salvation without sanctification, I believe we're in grave danger of losing both. Salvation and a life of sanctification or holy separation from sin in the world are inseparably intertwined. So God has ordained it. So God has chosen for his people. And it's because God is a holy God. Can a holy God have followers who are yearning towards the things of this world? No. So back to 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. That is who Peter was writing to. You thought I went off on a bunny trail. I was still talking about Peter. 
That's who Peter was identifying that he was writing to. People who were the elect. Those who had chosen to accept God's offer of salvation. Who had chosen to follow that path of holiness, of life, of sanctification of the Spirit. And obedience to Him. He then gives the salutation. He says, Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. This is a blessing or a prayer that these believers will be partakers of God's enabling grace and it would empower them to serve Him faithfully in the wicked world that they were in. These people were likely facing opposition and persecution. He was praying for the grace and the peace of God in their lives. The end result of their faithful service to the Lord would be peace. And I'm just going to make a, an observation that I've observed over the years. It's always dangerous when you talk about something that's not in your notes. But I have observed people who... have struggled to submit to the church, have struggled to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, have struggled to leave the world behind. And often those people are some of the least peaceful people I have known. And I have known people who have lived a life of complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that they haven't had any struggles. And those people have been some of the most peaceful people that I have known. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. As we do things God's way, as we look to Him for the grace and the strength to live a separate and holy life, I think that's when we will truly find ourselves experiencing the peace that is multiplied through surrender to the Lord. So in closing, may we each go forth from here and experience that same grace and peace in our lives as we serve the Lord, as we experience the cleansing from sin, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, and the sanctification of the Spirit, that guidance of the Spirit that leads us into a life of holiness and separation from the world. May God bless you.